You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 16th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Vous écoutez la radio Monocle. So, Hatcher Radio Monocle. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Connecting you to stories that matter. Monocle brings you the latest in global affairs, business, media and design, and much more. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolov. For Monocle in Tokyo, I'm Fiona Wilson. For Monocle in Los Angeles, I'm Chris Lord. Stay tuned. The Globalist is up next. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. It's 1500 in Beijing, 8am in Berlin, 7am here at Midori House in London and 1am in Des Moines. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Globalist starts now. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up in the Iowa caucuses, Donald Trump claims a record victory, persuading voters out into the cold. I just want to thank you all. This is a very special night. And this is the first because the big night is going to be in November when we take back our country. And truly, we do make our country great again. Thank you very much, everybody. Great honor. We'll have the latest on the battle, not perhaps for the winner, but for who came second and for Joe Biden. Also ahead. The threats to shipping must cease. Illegally detained vessels and crews must be released. And we remain prepared to back our words with actions. We'll examine the international reaction to another Houthi missile attack in the Red Sea. And we'll also look at how Iceland's infrastructure is holding up against another volcanic eruption. Plus the papers and the latest news from the Asia-Pacific. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. To look at what else is happening in today's news. Iran's Revolutionary Guards say they've attacked what they claim are gatherings of anti-Iranian terrorist groups near Iraq's northern city of Erbil. Ukraine claims to have destroyed a Russian surveillance plane and airborne command post in the Sea of Azov in an operation that could delay future strikes by Russia. And Switzerland is to host a global peace summit on Ukraine following a request from the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, ahead of last night's caucuses in the US state of Iowa, the only thing that was being counted were the number of centimetres of snow you had to walk through to cast your vote. Iowans became the first to weigh in on the 2024 presidential election. It's a quirky first step on the way to selecting the Republican candidate, made even odder by the freezing cold weather and the fact that a victory for Donald Trump was a given. Well, I'm joined now by Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord. Very good evening to you, Chris. Good morning to you, Emma. This win by Donald Trump was utterly predictable and it happened. 
predictable, but the landslide by which it has taken place has really, I think, sent a, I, I think, a bit of a shock through the punditry and also through the campaigns of the second and third place. That would be, as it currently stands, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, uh, and then in third place, the former governor of South Carolina and, and ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley. I think that scale of, of Trump's win, um, which is that, you know, as I speak to you now, just as the very, very final votes are being, ca- are being counted, you know, around 50 percent, anything over that 50 percent mark really is a historic win. Um, and if you watched Donald Trump's sort of victory speech um, in the immediate aftermath of, of the of when it got close to the point where the, it was very clear what was happening, he you know he sounded like a man who'd already won the nomination. He was talking about bringing people together. It may even sounded somewhat to some extent like he thought he'd won the presidency. I think this is a it is an extraordinary win for him. Of course, these these caucuses don't necessarily set the set the tone completely. There is more to come, but what a start to it. And we have essentially. By looking at Iowa, perhaps set the stage for the Trump-Biden rematch in November. Yes, that does appear to be the sort of direction of travel. And as much as that barnstorming win for the Trump campaign this evening really does mix things up, and it makes it very difficult now. I think for uh, the two, the second and third place, respectively, they're going to really struggle. I think to keep what is so important to these caucuses momentum going. You know, when you get an early win. That's why Iowa is always so important. That's why, you know, all of these candidates threw a lot at it. I mean, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, he went around every single county in Iowa, all 99 of them. Uh, and yet that hasn't translated into the kind of win that he thought he was going to have. I mean, really, those all those candidates, despite the predictions ahead of the uh, caucuses this evening, um, all of them believed and were very vocal about that Really, the fact that they had a good chance of of actually upsetting things, that actually the way that, that the polls looked probably weren't correct. When people go to that ballot booth, when they go in their gyms and local sort of parish halls and churches and so on, which is how these caucuses are, are voted on, that actually the way they will vote will, will not be the way everyone's expected. However, I do think, you know, we have to remember that these, uh, while this momentum will be lost, I think, for, for the second and third candidates uh, outside of the Trump campaign, I think there is also, you know, these things are dynamic. We've got just in a, in a week's time, we've got New Hampshire, where Nikki Haley um, is really expected to do very well. Uh, and then following up from that, South Carolina, where she used to be the governor. Having said that, from all the noises that I'm hearing out of South Carolina, it's expected that Trump's going to do very, very well there, despite that connection between Nikki Haley and the state. So while, you know, this is a very, very strong opening uh, lead, if you like, on the from what Iowa has d- determined, there is still more to go. There may be an opportunity for, I think, for Nikki Haley coming out of New Hampshire to maybe have a bit of a bounce. Uh, but things do look much more difficult, I would say, for for her and for Ron DeSantis. Tell us a little bit m- bit more about the observations that can be made about the way that people are campaigning in 2024. And you mentioned the fact that Ron DeSantis wore out the shoe leather. You saw Nikki Haley buying a sandwich, holding a baby, doing the traditional things that are expected, especially in the likes of Iowa, which delights in local customs. I mean, the caucuses are, are one of those in themselves. The fact was, is that, you know, Donald Trump was telling people, even if they were risking their lives to go out to vote, he was uh, knocking apart to one side the fact that he has, you know, these terrible legal troubles that he has to get through. Uh, there's a sort of a disruptive element, which obviously is irresistible. Are we just going to see that kind of narrative now until... You know, the, the end of the end of the process. 
So I agree that, you know, Ron DeSantis, I mean, really, you know, hit the shoe leather, got out there, went to all those 99 counties and made a point of kept saying that I've, you know, he kept saying I've been out and I've met Iowans. I've shook so many hands. Same with Nikki Haley. You know, the one candidate, ironically, who didn't really do that was Donald Trump. He was the one who remained quite aloof, if you like, from the whole from the whole process. He didn't debate with the other candidates. Uh, he didn't really do a huge amount of getting out there and meeting lots of people. He had lots of people in his campaign out and about, but actually personally going out, shaking hands and, as you say, kissing babies. He wasn't doing a huge amount of that. I think that you know what a lot of this does boil down to. I think there's two forces at work that we can that we can draw from this. I think firstly, if we cast our minds back to when Donald Trump entered politics, 2016, at that time, you know, the, the state of conservative it was quite a different field. It was first, first of all very stratified. You had people like Ted Cruz, who were regarded really as the sort of brave new hope by a lot of people who were on the right of the conservative movement. Interestingly, if you look at what has happened overnight in, in Iowa, so much of that vote simply has just become the Trump vote. Even though Ron DeSantis ran a campaign that was all about anti-woke and, you know, saying the things that no one dared to say. And he's the Florida governor who, you know, a place where, as he puts it, woke goes to die. Despite all that, actually, all those people on the right of the party continue to say, actually, Donald Trump is the person for us. The many of them simply have pivoted and believe that he is the person who can who can represent them. I think that is a very important shift that we've seen happen, where simply, you know, the, the further right you go, the more Donald Trump it becomes. And I think that there's simply not that space anymore like there used to be for other candidates, however pugnacious they can be, as we've seen with Ron DeSantis. Is there a chance, perhaps, um, despite the fact that Donald Trump won by such an enormous margin, that any rival of his at the moment is not going to get anywhere because there are so many of them. And if you have Ronda Santerson and you have Nikki Haley dividing the remaining Republican voters, that is obviously going to weaken their position. So in the immediate aftermath of this vote this evening, we have seen Vivek Ramaswamy, who was in fourth place, only in single digits uh, tonight for, for Iowa. Um, but he has said he's pulling out of the race and he's going to endorse Donald Trump. Now, I would say that probably that does offer a little bump there for the campaign wherever they go next. Those can, those uh, voters who, again, Vivek Ramaswamy is someone who really is a sort of inheritor of lots of the kind of MAGA world that Trump um, pushes forward, anti-woke and so on, trying to kind of uh, set his nose very much on the right of the party. So I think that will present... Um, a bit of a bump here. But I think that, that, that we have to remember one thing is that while this does set the stage and creates a lot of momentum for Trump going into these next few weeks, there are also other events going on behind the scenes. The former president is about to face multiple um, legal wrangles, um, probably the most pressing of which is going to be uh, the special counsel investigation into the events of uh, January 6, 2021, when, of course, there was the storming of the Capitol building and the allegation that Donald Trump in some way whipped everyone up and sort of staged an insurrection, if you like, in the U.S. Capitol. All these things, you know, the, these these caucuses and primaries which you're going to see coming in the next few weeks, as I say, they don't exist in a vacuum. They're responding all the time first to momentum within the campaigns and how they succeed from one week to the next. But also they're re responding to events outside of the campaign trail. And I think that, you know, we're going to see uh, Donald Trump zipping back and forth between different court appearances and uh, also to, to to be on the campaign trail. However, there is one final point which I, which I would make, and I think this is very important about this point of momentum, is that while, yes, it might seem like, you know, um, some of these second and third rate candidates now would probably think, well, maybe now is the time to bow out. I think that 
the, the difficulty a lot of them are going to face is that you need to look strong from week to week, from primary to primary, to keep the money coming in. You need those campaign donations because they're the thing that allows you to go and do what Ron DeSantis has done in these last uh, over these last 12 months to get out to meet voters, to talk to people. Um, the caucuses are a very unique thing because they're so local. But I think that's gonna, that doesn't take anything away from being out and being present in these uh, next few weeks. I think depending on what happens with uh, New Hampshire, as I say, there is a good chance of a big bump for, for Nikki Haley in there. That could really um, make some problems for Ron DeSantis and carrying going on going forward, simply on the fact of does he have the momentum and the campaign money to keep going. Finally, how much of a big problem does he now pose to Joe Biden? What's striking is the the main thing that American voters care about right now. Number one is immigration. Number two is the economy. And both of those things, you can put aside all the wranglings over um, whether abortion should be banned nationally and uh, foreign policy with regards to Russia and Ukraine and, and, and what's happening in the Middle East. Put all that aside. Because the two main things that voters care about in this country uh, is immigration and the economy. And the narrative is very, very strong, pushed by Donald Trump, pushed by his supporters uh, and pushed by the pundits who support him as well, that in essence, Joe Biden is driving a crisis on both of these things. Many voters simply blame Joe Biden for the uh, high prices that continue to plague many Americans' lives, despite cooling inflation across the country. And similarly, the feeling, the sense that a lot lot of Americans have that the southern border has simply been lost, that it has run out of control. Donald Trump will message that hard, hard, hard going in the weeks ahead. And it is landing. It is landing, whether Joe Biden and the Democrats like it or not. And I think that they are, unfortunately, at the moment, and maybe there's a clever bit of strategy that I've not quite grasped here. But at the moment, the main messaging from Joe Biden's team is about Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. Actually, is that really what voters are concerned about right now when they're worried about their pockets Uh, and they're worried about who's coming into the country. Chris Lord, thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to The Globalist. Fifteen thirteen in Beijing, seven thirteen a.m. here in London. Now the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi is on a four-nation tour of Africa. First stop was the Egyptian capital Cairo, where he criticised the U.S.-led coalition for adding fuel to the fire in the Middle East. But how welcome and relevant is his intervention? Well, to tell us more, I'm joined now by Isabel Hilton, an expert on China and visiting professor at King's College London, and a regular voice here on Monocle Radio. Good morning, Isabel. Good morning. So this is part of an annual tradition that's been lasting for, what, nigh on three decades? Yes. For the past 34 years, the uh, Chinese foreign minister has started his year by visiting Africa, which is a kind of testament, if you like, to to the depth of China's relationship with Africa. It's now absolutely the biggest economic partner. It's uh, had a big role in building infrastructure. It's also, perhaps on a less positive note, managing debt. But this is part of China's approach to global diplomacy, uh, posing or presenting itself, rather, as the uh, the leader of the emerging economies. So, first trip, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, was Egypt. And it has been the top African destination for for Chinese leaders since 2016. They've they've welcomed... um, 
a Chinese representative for what at least for, on at least five occasions. What was the purpose of this trip? Well, I think high on the agenda in this trip because of current events has been the situation in the Gulf, and we've seen. Um, Again, China presenting itself as the responsible power. It's not engaged in any military activity. It's been extremely um, cautious about what it says. So it calls for a two-state solution, calls for an immediate and comprehensive ceasefire. And it's been recruiting allies, if you like, for that position. It's not that China's contributing hugely to the diplomacy in the region, but as a kind of general position of frustrating U.S. diplomacy and pointing to the United States as the problem. All of these visits and all of these statements are useful. And so we will see China, you know, we will see this message being repeated across the region. China's been engaged in some fairly, you know, active diplomacy in the sense that there have been lots of calls uh, since the Gaza situation erupted. Um, and China's, of course, main ally in the region is Iran. But we don't see much sign of a moderating influence uh, from China uh, beyond phone calls and beyond statements. Yesterday, there was a press conference in Cairo where, where Yang Wangi called for an international summit for peace to find a just, comprehensive and lasting solution to the Palestinian cause. I'm uh, just quoting here, by ending the occupation and end, in, establishing an independent, contiguous Palestinian state. Clearly, the, the, that is where the loyalties lie. But what is China hoping to achieve by wading in when, as you say, the majority of the, um, the, the majority of the influencing has been done, done behind closed doors? Well, I guess there's nothing to lose because, you know, China, China, if you remember in Ukraine, put forward a, a peace plan in slightly in quotes, which was a series of, of uh, bullet points. It was, a, it was effectively a statement of position and it didn't have any kind of um, it didn't have any diplomatic underpinning. Uh, there wasn't a plan to get this plan uh, uh, in, enacted. And this is very much the same. These are very well rehearsed positions. Um, but it remains to be seen that China is prepared to put any diplomatic heft into it because that implies risk and that implies taking on uh, it implies taking on responsibilities that China so far has taken on rhetorically but not actually in practice. I mean, even where, for example, Chinese shipping is at risk as, as the rest of global shipping is at risk because of the situation in the Red Sea and the, and the, and the attacks, China has been signaling uh, to Iran the passage of its own ships in order that they be spared any attack. Now, that's all right for Chinese shipping, but it's not really a contribution to the to the uh, resolution of, of this rather um, dangerous situation. Let's look at where else Wangi is going to. The, the visits um, take in Togo, Tunisia and Ivory Coast. Shall we go move next to Togo? What happens there and what's China's relationship there? Well, again, you know, China is the biggest um, uh, is is the biggest trade partner um, in in most of the countries in Africa, and you know, it's kind of spreading the love. I don't think that there's a particular there is anything particular to be gained from the rest of the list. Egypt is the is the key one, and the next uh, uh, important stop on this uh, first foreign tour is is in um, is is to Brazil, which again has much more significance than. The rest of the Africa tour. Um, the interesting thing is always the, the, the close economic ties that China enjoy, enjoys with um, countries like Togo. Um, 
And also there's an election in Togo this year as well. And the, the desire is to to keep favourable relations with them and, and, and keep the West African Development Bank on side as well. Yes, I mean, all of that is true. And that's part of, of China. As I say, China has a fairly in-depth relationship um, and with with. Um, with all of uh, of Africa, China tends, you know, an election. Uh, China will make sure that it has good relations with whoever wins the election. Um, I, you know, it's it's part of China's uh, general diplomatic toolkit. You know, in Togo, has China has um, development projects, in building roads, uh, rehabilitating roads. Uh, the Bank of, of Development, as you say, is, is important. There's uh, an important loan to Togo from China's Exim Bank. You know, this is part of the kind of general fabric of China's uh, relations with uh, with African countries. And the issue of the loans and also the depth of investment and interest in, in Africa that, that China has, how much does it absolutely cut out the rest of the world? Because there was... Recently, you know, criticism that the United States really missed a trick when it came here. Well, um, China's been working at this for a long time. And we started this conversation by pointing out that for 34 years, you know, Africa has been the first stop on a very active um, uh, economic and, and political diplomacy. So China uh, is preparing for uh, the uh, FOCAC summit, which will take place in Beijing later in the year, that's the forum for cooperation um, between China and Africa, in which every African leader turns up. And it's a huge publicity uh, for China's relationship with Africa. It presents China as a really important leader of emerging economies. It helps build China's influence in the United Nations, where it can thwart the kind of, in the General Assembly, it can thwart uh, the American uh, uh, will, and it can also you know, create the impression that American influence is diminishing, which in many ways it is. And it's diminishing largely as a result of this combination of political attention, diplomatic attention, and economic heft that China's been practicing in Africa um, for for decades now. And the Western powers have, they haven't been excluded, but they've certainly been out, outclassed uh, by by China's uh, by China's policy, Isabel Hilton. Thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's program, an interview from Davos first AI discussion space. There is so many negative topics here in Davos. We unfortunately need to tackle. So let's at least have the AI discussion be positive. Hear more a little later on the Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Let's 
continue with today's newspapers with me in the studio, Charles Hacker, a senior partner at Control Risks. Currently on leave, though, writing a book about Russian and international business. I'm not allowed to ask him how the book's going because you've only got 11 weeks until you've got a hand in your homework, haven't you? Yeah. Do we call you Charles or Chuck on the radio? Uh, Charles is more expensive than Chuck. Yeah. Um, but when you're writing the book, are you Chuck? Uh, until it gets to the publisher, I'm Chuck. When it gets to the publisher, I'm Charles. Okay, Chuck. What have we found in the papers today? <laughs> We're going to start in The Times, which has had an interview with the Prime Minister of Estonia, Kaya Kallis, under the following headline, Russia will threaten NATO borders within three years, says Estonia. And so this is a fairly interesting story, not just about the war in Ukraine, but really the impact on Russian military capacity as a result of that conflict. And um, The Times tells us that there has been a German evaluation that says it would take up to nine years for Russia to rebuild its forces to the extent that it becomes a threat to NATO. But the Prime Minister Minister of Estonia, based on her own intelligence agencies, is telling the Times that that period is actually much shorter and that it could be between three to five years before Russia rebuilds and then once again starts to press really hard on NATO's eastern flank. Um, Kaya Kala says that Russia considers the Baltic states to be NATO's weakest or easiest point of entry, and she's quite nervous. Um, Clearly, she's quite nervous. And it's quite an astonishing claim to make, given the fact that NATO's eastern borders are NATO's eastern borders. And one would imagine that NATO is a a secure protective veil. Well, that's right. And, And so the entry of Finland into NATO, which, of course, is very, very close to all the Baltic nations, has been a source of some support. Um, And the Times tells us that that backup could come very quickly from Finland, which is a major military contributor to to NATO now that it is a member of the alliance. And even before it joined the alliance, Finland was as close a country to NATO as you could be without being in NATO. Um, So that will help somewhat. Um, and, And so what the prime minister of Estonia has done is she has once again called for a redoubling of support for Ukraine. Because not only is she aiming for a Ukrainian victory in the war with Russia, but she wants to continue to degrade Russia's military capacity and push back that date uh, by which Russia could once again become a threat to her own country. There is that need, though, that if you are going to ratchet up the support, countries are going to have to chip in with more defense spending. That's right. So there's some there's some text in this story and, and some um, language about increasing the amount of military spending that each NATO member should contribute. Uh, and that is that, and, and Kaya Kallis is saying that countries who are a member of the alliance should be spending 2.5% um, of their budgets on on their military capability rather than 2%. So she's asking the alliance to put its money where its mouth is, not just in Ukraine, um, but also domestically in each member country. Uh, let's move to the Financial Times. A couple of stories we wanted to talk about this morning. Um, so the continuing saga of the Tory party, the, the, the governing Conservative Party, wishing to uh, put into place a plan to send illegal or actually just many asylum seekers claiming asylum here in the United Kingdom to have them processed and probably permanently sent to Rwanda. Um, Lots of the opposition party saying this plan is absolute nonsense. The Conservative Party inside the Conservative Party, many people are saying that it's not hard enough. Today it all happens, doesn't it? It's back in, in front of Parliament and round we go again. 
That's right, Emma. As we've suggested, we're in the Financial Times under a headline that says, Sunak braced for big Tory rebellion over Rwanda asylum plan. And so, you know, they really this is a two-track story, essentially. It's about um, the bill, and discussion is coming up today and tomorrow in Parliament with votes on this bill. It's about the bill on immigration and sending illegal immigrants to Rwanda. But at the same time, this is really a proxy battle of, of a civil war inside uh, the Conservative Party. Uh, and you've had some fairly high-level threats of defection from the government and of defection from the party unless a few things happen. And so when this bill comes up for a vote, um, hard right-wing conservatives are going to say that it lacks two things. It should be shutting down any sort of appeals process um, so that immigrants can make absolutely no um, – have no recourse to a decision to deport them. And then the other thing is that it should be seeking judicial immunity, and that is that, that that no other court in this or any other land should be able to say that this is a bad plan. Um, and if this doesn't happen, um, Sunak has a deepening civil war on his hands. Okay. So there is that. Um, at the same time, what's the, what's the FT suggesting is going to happen today? Because the two ideas that you've put forward, or sorry, the, the, you said the, 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 rights, the, the right wingers inside the Conservative Party, um, anyone who's written, read five minutes of law will know that that can be unpicked in a flash. That's right. It's not going. That will not stand up to any sort of domestic or le- or international legal scrutiny. Um, so, what will happen? The FT forecasts is that the prime minister will probably undertake a, a series of fatal half measures, and that is that he will try to make sure that this process happens more quickly and more efficiently, and that it has more money, and that it has more judges, and so that it will actually start to work. Um, which it hasn't so far. Uh, So what the FT thinks is that if the prime minister can actually get this up and running, um, ideally before the next election, which is going to be sometime in the coming year, then that will quiet the hardline critics um, because at least they'll be able to say, look, we're getting people out of the country. Uh, Let's move on to another article in the Financial Times uh, where there is an accusation that the the British political class uh, need to learn to love the economy that the United Kingdom actually has, using Rishi Sunak as an example of a man who loves a game, loves gaming, but actually doesn't want to include or hasn't shown any signs of including any gaming um, executives in government or has taken any real interest in something, which is clearly making Britain a lot of money. That's right. This is this is a column by Stephen Bush in, in the UK under the headline that says the UK's political class needs to learn to love the economy that it actually has, uh, as opposed to the one that it wants. And so I guess what Stephen Bush is asking us here is to sort of stop pretending, stop dreaming, stop being wistful, stop being sort of pro or anti-Brexit or remain or leave. Um, There are certain elements of the British economy that the country is very, very good at. And whether we like them or not, we should double down on them. Um, He takes a sort of veiled swipe um, at Rishi Sunak because of the many things that say about the prime minister. One of the things that they do say about him is that he's a nerd. And that's because he's a very big online gamer. And basically, they're saying, look, we're very, very good in computer arts. We're good at banking. We have a great university sector. We have a huge legal sector. We've got a great creative sector. Um, And the government continues to find things wrong with these sectors. And Stephen Bush is saying, 
give it a rest, get on with what we've got. It, it, one of the points you raise is, is all these areas, uh, video gamers, bankers, universities, legal experts, musicians and actors are A, liberal, and B, they all hated Brexit. And, and there feels as if there is that sort of social chip on the shoulder. That's right. So asking the UK economy to sort of get on with what it's got and, and stop dreaming about what it's lost or what it might have is a way of trying to resolve the Brexit issue in a way in favor, you know, exactly as you point out, in, in, in favor of sort of the liberals and in favor of the internationalists. Um, that may be too bitter a pill to swallow for our nerdy prime minister as much as he likes to sit in front of the gaming console. Finally, a lovely story that you've uh, brought to our attention, but possibly the most London-centric story I've ever, ever read. It's the tyranny of the algorithm why every coffee shop looks the same. I, I, you strike me as a man who likes a good coffee shop. I'm addicted to coffee, and <laughs> okay. I, I, I can't really, I can't literally sort of, sort of perform any function without many, many cups of coffee. It's interesting that you should say that this is a London story. Um, a colleague of mine who used to live in London and now lives in Washington D.C. came back for a visit not too long ago, and he said, "Is everybody in London doing nothing but drinking coffee because of the number of coffee shops on the street?" Uh, and so, what we're in now is a long read, a very interesting long read in the Guardian under the headline that says, "The Tyranny of the Algorithm: Why Every Coffee Shop Looks the Same." And you know, it, it's it's a it's a terrific read, and I think it'll resonate. Um, with our listeners, and I think it will resonate with anybody who has a flick through the pages or, or visits the website online. And, and Emma, whether it's a London story or not, what it says is that coffee shops in London, in Paris, in Bangkok, in New Zealand, in Buenos Aires, uh, and, and even perhaps in Washington, D.C., pretty much all look the same. Um, the large sort of pine tables, the whitewashed walls, the tiled surfaces. Lots of plants. Lots of Tons plants. Of plants. Big windows. And, of course, to blame in all of this is Instagram. Um, because we're posting pictures of coffee shops that we like. Those all happen to look the same. And when you start searching, or if you Google hipster coffee shop, you get this parade of identical venues, no matter where you're looking. Frankly, if you Google, if you've got the time to Google hipster coffee shop, you've got too much time on your hands. Charles Hecker, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. The time here in London is 7.32am. A quick look now at the headlines. Iran's Revolutionary Guards say they've attacked what they claim are gatherings of anti-Iranian terrorist groups near to Iraq's northern city of Erbil. Two people have been killed. Iran's carried out strikes in Iraq's northern Kurdistan region in the past, saying the area is used as a staging ground for Iranian separatist groups as well as for Israeli agents. Ukraine claims to have destroyed a Russian surveillance plane and airborne command post in the Sea of Azov in an operation that could delay future strikes by Russia. The Ukrainian military claimed that Russia had used the plane extensively to prepare for and conduct long-range missile strikes on Ukraine and that the downing of the aircraft will be a huge loss for Russia's air force because so few are in service. Switzerland is to host a global peace summit on Ukraine. The request came from the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. Switzerland's previously acted as a broker to resolve conflicts. The government said further details are being worked out. And Succession, Beef and the Bear were the big winners at the Emmys. Sarah Snook, Kieran Culkin and Matthew McFadgian all took home acting prizes for Succession. The show also won Best Drama Series overall. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned.
Tim, all now about yesterday's targeting of a US-owned ship by Houthi rebels in the Red Sea. The Iranian-backed militia said the vessel was hit in response to strikes by the US and UK on Houthis in Yemen. I'm joined now down the line from Jerusalem by Middle East correspondent Greg Karlstrom. Good morning, Greg. Hi, good morning. So this targeting of this US ship yesterday was seen and said to be a clear retaliation for last week's missile attacks. Right. And I don't think anyone who follows Yemen, who follows the Houthis, was surprised that their response to those attacks was not to uh, halt their attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, but to try and escalate those attacks. So now, uh, where once they claimed that they were only attacking ships with a link to Israel, now they say they're also targeting American and British vessels in the sea as well. I mean, this is a group that uh, fought a decades-long insurgency against the Yemeni state. Uh, it has fought a nine-year war against the Saudi-led coalition, uh, both of those incredibly brutal conflicts. So I don't think it's surprising that they weren't deterred by uh, a handful of strikes last week by by American and British planes. Indeed, they, they seem to have sort of increased their operations here, haven't they? Because up until last week, they were saying that they were intercepting Israel-bound, Israeli-owned ships going through the Bab al-Mandeb, which is this passage of water going up, up to the Red Sea. Um, that The purpose of that was to pressure Israel into into calling a ceasefire in Gaza. But this now seems to be a deliberate targeting of a US ship, and it's happening in the Gulf of Aden. Right. And we should be clear, the, the rhetoric before was that they were targeting Israeli-linked ships. But in practice, that wasn't always what they were doing. Some of the ships that they fired missiles at or tried to board uh, have no discernible links to Israel. But yes, they have now upped that rhetoric to say that they're targeting American and British ships. I think in the short term, the, the question is whether that US-UK coalition will continue conducting strikes, whether what happened last week was sort of a one-off or whether it's going to be a more continued campaign. And if it is, uh, whether those strikes can destroy specific military capabilities the Houthis need to target ships, uh, things like anti-ship missiles, those are a finite resource. And once they run out of them, they're not easily replaced. So that's the, the tactical question in the short term. But I think in the longer term, uh, both the Houthis and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard who support them uh, have discovered now that they have this very effective tool to shut down shipping through one of the world's most important waterways. Uh, and that's something that they are likely to use again, and the Iranians are likely to invest in in supporting and building that capability. It's incredible, isn't it? Because you, you, the amount of disruption this is causing is now one of the, if not the biggest subjects that's been discussed at the World Economic Forum in Davos. And when you think about it, three months ago, none of this existed. And now the world is wondering how it's getting its goods from A to B. Right. And this is a capability that the Houthis have used once or twice before. They've targeted individual ships uh, in, in the Red Sea or, or off their southern coast uh, to send a message. But this sort of, of near blockade of the waterway uh, is something new. It will have knock-on effects for the world. I think those are perhaps likely to be a bit less dramatic than than they might seem right now. I mean, there will be an impact on inflation, but it's probably less than a percentage point's worth of impact. Uh, we've seen uh, you know, a handful of car manufacturers in Europe and other firms saying that they have to suspend operations temporarily because they don't have parts, because those parts are now being uh, rerouted around Southern Africa. But you know, I think some of the most immediate dramatic impacts, ironically, it's, it's likely to be in the region itself. It'll be in Yemen. Uh, where this is going to lead to significantly higher costs to import food and other essentials 
to a country where most people are already in, in poverty and going hungry. Uh, it'll have consequences for Egypt, which relies on revenues from the Suez Canal as one of its main sources of foreign currency. Uh, those revenues have now been dramatically cut. And if this is sustained, uh, it will lead to, to ongoing fiscal problems for an Egyptian government that is already buried in debt. So there are consequences around the world, but some of the most acute consequences in the short term are likely to be in, in Yemen and nearby countries. Yesterday, the British Prime Minister came out and, and said, we shouldn't fall for the Houthis' malign narrative that this is about Israel and Gaza. How much of a point has Rishi Sunak got here? I think it's it's very hard to say. I mean, speaking to people who know Yemen quite well, people who know the Houthis quite well over the past few days, uh, almost none of them think that a ceasefire in Gaza would lead the Houthis to stop these attacks on shipping, that what they're trying to do here is not just signal support, signal solidarity for the Palestinians, but also uh, play to a domestic audience and a regional audience. I mean, you look at the backdrop right now, and Houthis have been trying to negotiate uh, a peace deal with Saudi Arabia to end the Saudi role in Yemen civil war. Uh, they are dealing with a lot of domestic unrest and anger at home in the areas that they control in Yemen. Uh, from a population that is really just fed up with their atrocious governance of the country over the past nine years. So these attacks on shipping, they're a useful distraction. They're a welcome distraction for the Houthis at the moment. Uh, so would a ceasefire in Gaza, could it help? That's possible. But would it definitely lead to a cessation of these attacks? Uh, I don't think that's clear at this point. And there, there is no sign of a ceasefire being well, coming about, given the fact that yesterday, I think it was UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, um, called once again for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. And we are looking at a world now which which is saying things, but the words are falling on deaf ears. Right. Uh, you know, you have Israel last week being brought before the International Court of Justice, accused of genocide, and Prime Minister Netanyahu's response to that was to say that no one will stop us, not even the Hague. So the Israeli government uh, still very much determined to press ahead with this war, regardless of what everyone says. But there is also, uh, I think, growing division within Israeli society about the war. I would still say a majority of Israelis support continuing the conflict. But there is an increasing sense uh, amongst some Israelis that the longer this war goes on, the less likely it is that Israel will secure the release of the uh, 130 or so hostages who are still being held in Gaza. Around 20 of them might already be dead. Uh, there's a belief that those who are still alive don't have much time left. They're living in, in awful conditions the same way everyone in Gaza is living in awful conditions. Uh, and there is, I think, a, a growing push within parts of Israeli society to say the only way to get them out is to agree to a ceasefire. The war seems like it, it has stuck in some ways where it's not achieving uh, big tactical or strategic goals at the moment. And so there is a growing push uh, to try and, and make some kind of hostage deal that would uh, include a, a ceasefire. That's not a majority view yet, I don't think, but that is a growing view within Israeli society. Greg Karlstrom, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Tune in to Monocle on Culture, where we grill our panel of critics to get the inside line on the best in the world of film, music, art, literature and more. 
It's just got this synth section that kind of makes you want to swing through the saloon doors straight to the dance floor. With industry insiders and the odd bit of reportage too, it's bound to keep the most discerning of culture vultures very well fed. Why'd You Come In Here Looking Like That is a song that is absolutely going to make you want to put on a pair of tight jeans and go boot scooting, even if it's just in <laughs> your front room. Monocle on Culture, premiering Mondays at 2000 London time and available thereafter wherever you get your podcasts. of news from the Asia-Pacific region. Natalia Sutherland is a reporter based in New Zealand. Uh, a very good afternoon to you, Natalia, or should I say good evening? Good evening. Good morning to you. Good to, good to see you. How's Tuesday looking from where you are? Has it, have, are we still going? Uh, it's absolutely stunning today. Delighted to hear <laughs> it. Right. Tell us about what news uh, from where you are. Oh, so today um, the news coming out of Australia is that the Australian Foreign Minister uh, Penny Wong will land in Israel today. Uh, she is in the Middle East for a week um, for a tour there where she'll visit the West Bank, Israel, the UAE and Jordan. Uh, part of her trip today to Israel will be to visit the families of hostages taken on October the 7th by Hamas. Uh, now there's a little bit of controversy around her trip this week, especially uh, to the conflict area of Israel and uh, uh, the West Bank. Uh, she'll be walking a tightrope politically because she's been criticised from both sides uh, for Australia's stance on the conflict, on one side for supporting Israel's right to defend itself, but also for uh, calling for a ceasefire before the trip. Um, Australia is really playing the middle ground here. They're a middle power um, and they are taking uh, no sides in this conflict between Israel and uh, uh, Palestine. Uh, one hand, they... Um, are condemning Israel's settlements in the West Bank. Uh, they say that's illegal, and that's why she'll be making that trip to the West Bank this week. But on the other hand, uh, they want Hamas gone. They've made that pretty clear from Australia's point of view, um, and Gaza to be free of terrorist activity. Uh, Wong has uh, told the press today that her visit will focus on advocacy. She wants to see vital aid delivered to Gaza. Uh, and also to advocate for greater protection for all civilians in the region. She's also wanting to see a de-escalation of tension in the wider region, uh, obviously with uh, what's happening in the Red Sea. Uh, let's move to uh, news closer to where you are with issues of the Maori King. Yes, yeah, so this week the Maori King has called an unprecedented uh, meeting or what we call in New Zealand a hui between tribal leaders to discuss the new uh, government's uh, policies. Obviously, last year we voted in a new government a bit more right-leaning, and then this has caused uh, a lot of outrage, especially among Maori and New Zealand from some of the policies this government uh, is calling in. So this has prompted the king to declare a proclamation to draw the tribal leaders together to have a discussion um, it kind of shows you just how um, tense things have been in New Zealand over the last couple of months and the concerns about these new legislations. Um, some of the legislations uh, 
that they are concerned about are ones that are specifically aimed at Māori, such as disestablishing the Māori Health Authority, changing names of public uh, organisations in New Zealand from Māori to English. Now staff working for those organisations can't answer phone calls in Māori. They have to speak English. That's part of some legislation the new government's brought in. This has prompted two things. It's prompted lawsuits from uh, some tribal leaders against the government uh, saying that the government is rolling back uh, 40 to 50 years worth of work by Maori people to reclaim their identity and their language. And it's also prompted large protests, which we saw at the end of last year with thousands uh, took to the streets. So you kind of get the sense that the king is trying his best to quell those tensions um, and to stop large protests from happening, especially around our National Day, Waitangi Day, in February in a couple of weeks. But it's also a big test too for Prime Minister Luxon, who's already met with the King to hear his um, concerns and how going forward he will negotiate with his coalition uh, leaders. Natalia Sutherland, thank you. You're listening to Monaco Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Now, the Icelandic fish, fishing village of Grindavik is a close-knit community. It lies on a former lava field. Its residents have been living with earthquakes all their lives. However, this week's volcanic eruption, the second in two months, has made their homes literally in the line of fire, with lava flows destroying houses. Well, the broadcast journalist Lara Omastotir joins me now from Reykjavik. A very good morning to you, Lara. Good morning. Now, the, the impact of people in, in Grindavik, Grindavik it's, it's, it's making people move permanently, isn't it? Many to the, some of them to, to Reykjavik, to the capital. Yeah, I, I believe that some of uh, the residents want to move back to Grindavik. Uh, this has been a very difficult times for the people of Grindavik. Uh, all this uncertainty have made them uh, uh, bury and they, uh, they don't know, even though their house is not like ruined or anything, they don't uh, maybe want to go back to Grindavik at all. Uh, so that they are questioning if uh, what what can be done. Will the government uh, buy all the houses of Grindavik, or or will they ever be able to live there again? Uh, these are questions that people ask. Uh, uh, this morning, for example, they they were trying all night to uh, get hot water to the town. Uh, bear in mind, in Iceland, we heat our houses with hot water, and uh, uh, the pipe. Uh, uh, was destroyed uh, in the eruption. And uh, if uh, the water freezes in the pipes, uh, uh, the, the pipes will um, break. And then the, on top of all the uh, other things that have happened, uh, water uh, might ruin the houses that are still there. So it's a very um, uncertain times for people of Grindavik here. Now, as far as I can gather, the last time that this volcanic eruption, a comparable volcanic eruption occurred was 800 years ago and it went on for 200 years. The, 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 the ground and the area was a constant source of disruption. Now, people in Grindavik have been used to the earth moving but not for the earth to actually release lava. So is there a fear that actually this is now a permanent, well, for the next 200 years at least, situation for those in the village? Yeah, uh, 
many believe that this is uh, we are entering a new era of uh, volcanic uh, activity in the area. Uh, and like you said, it has uh, occurred every 800 years or so. So, uh, and if that's the case, it will go on for the next one or 200 years. So yeah, absolutely. People are uh, thinking now because there is, this is the fifth one in a very short period of time. Uh, so uh, people are thinking, is it possible to live there in, or do they need to move to Reykjavik or the other places? Uh, and when you have this situation and you have people thinking, I have to move permanently because my house is at risk of being engulfed, um, what about those who can't afford it, whose lives are, are absolutely, you know, who are there in Grindavik? It's a tiny community, isn't it? It's about 3,000 people. Yeah, it's about three or 4,000 people live there. Uh, it's a very um, um, uh, kind of wealthy society because of uh, the fishing industry in Grindavik. So some people are, are suggesting just to move the town a little bit, uh, you know, away from uh, uh, this activity. But uh, if people have to move, uh, they're hoping that the, the state will buy the properties so they can buy something else somewhere else. But it's also their, like, their entire lives there. It's their homes. It's, uh, uh, it's the community uh, they love. Uh, so there's a lot of sadness amongst the people from Grindavik now. And all this uncertainty is not helping. And the wider impact on Iceland, its infrastructure, its tourism as well. I mean, there will be those who I would imagine would be absolutely excited beyond relief to go and have a look at an active volcano. But it's much more complicated than that, isn't it? Yeah, but you cannot go to this uh, area at the moment. It's very, very dangerous. There are like, uh, uh, yeah, there are. The conditions there are very uh, dangerous. There, there are like cracks all over the town. Uh, the pavement is kind of has kind of melted a little bit, so you can't be even be sure walking on the pavement in Grindavik if it's safe or not. But on the other hand, we have um, Iceland, and Grindavik is just a really, really small portion of Iceland, and Iceland is a very safe country to travel to. Uh, and maybe in the future, Grindavik will be a place uh, uh, tourists can go to, but not today, of course. Uh, but uh, at the moment, Blue Lagoon is safe. Uh, all the infrastructure uh, on other uh, in Iceland is safe. Iceland is safe. So uh, it's okay to come and visit Iceland, but not Grindavik at the moment. Lara, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. That was Lara Omas-Dottir. You're listening to The Globalist. Now, Davos plays host to the World Economic Forum this week. The focal point is a Congress centre where heads of state gather for closed meetings, but much of the action happens on the, on the public promenade either side. Here, brands and countries create so-called houses, holding panel discussions. It's a hub of activity. Well, this year welcomes the first AI house host by, hosted by Morantix, an AI investment company based in Berlin. The new space was prompted after last year's gathering. Despite everyone discussing AI, there was no centralised place to do it. So Monocle Studio Director Christy O'Grady heard from Morantic's co-founder Rasmus Rota. She began by asking him if he had any specific goals to achieve this week. Hopefully some concrete new partnerships will come out of that. So new people working together, agreeing on things, maybe doing business with each other, maybe on the policy side making advancements. I think the more concrete it gets, the greater. And 
hopefully quite decentralized in the AI house. There's so many great discussions already going on on the, on the first day today. And I'm sure there will be a lot of things coming out of that. So, and hopefully also for us as Merantics, we'll take a few concrete things back from here. Are you allowed to go into more specifics about ventures you're hoping to partner with or policy that you're hoping to push through? For us as a investor in AI companies, but also with our service business, helping large organizations to adopt AI, Anyone who can become a customer is great. You know, some of these big corporations, they obviously want to adopt AI. We can be a great partner to help them with our companies and our efforts. That's one thing. I think second thing, obviously, also increasing the amount of capital we are investing in AI. So having a few meaningful conversations with investors. And then lastly, I think there's a lot of debate right now about AI policy, regulation, and hopefully also we created a place here where some of these policy discussions, especially also about the UAI Act and how we regulate AI globally, move forward as the right people meet here today and in the next couple of days. Could you talk about some of the ventures you already invest in, the kind of work that they do? We generally believe there's so much to do with AI, why not focus on the most impactful applications first. So for example, one of our companies, Vara, is using AI to detect breast cancer and it's already running close to 70% of cancer screening in Germany and many other places and finds much more cancers and much quicker than, than any doctor. So really has a positive impact because when, when it's detected early, it's, it's, it's curable. We have a company optimizing protein materials using AI called Cambrium. We have a company, Deltia, using AI in factories, analyzing workflows and trying to make factories more efficient. We just started a company in the fertility space. We started a company in the legal tech space that basically tries to automate lawsuits and also ex increase access to justice for the general citizens. So plenty of applications and, and also excited about what we'll invest this year. That's really heartening to hear because I think, especially in more recent months, wherever you look, it's quite doom and gloom when it comes to AI, as certainly everyone is aware of some of the dangers. So it's nice to hear that there are some really positive applications. You advise the German government on their AI policy. Did their concerns match up with your concerns when it comes to what policy needs to be? I think there's generally agreement that AI needs to be regulated. I think from an industry perspective, my perspective would be to let's first build and see what actually works and let's experiment with it. And if there are problems, then let's regulate. I think in Europe, we have the tendency to go the other way around. So first think about all possible regulations and scenarios that could happen make very complex regulation, which creates a lot of uncertainty for people building AI applications, and then they might build them somewhere else, rather than first, first looking at stuff. So I think I would have loved if we would have maybe even experimented a bit more, made it a bit more concrete. But now we have the UAI Act as it is. It's now obviously needs to be specified out in details, and we're working very close with, with the relevant stakeholders to making sure these details make sense, because also not using AI has a big problem. I mean, We humans make a lot of mistakes. There's a big labor shortage. We're not perfect. And there's a lot of life critical things. Think autonomous driving, where more than a million people die in car accidents a year or, you know, doctors being overworked and, and overseeing things and not looking at all the data. So these are all high risk applications, but also high reward applications. And so we want entrepreneurs tackle them because that's where we create a better world. We don't create it when we create the next game or advertising company. That's maybe less high risk, but it's also less high reward for society. And so I think this has a lot about to do with also the narrative 
and I'm hoping also that here in Davos we can change that narrative a bit, make it a bit positive because um, there are so many negative topics here in Davos we unfortunately need to tackle. So let's let's at least have the AI discussion be positive. And just one final question on that. I think it's quite interesting that you said that you would prefer to create first and regulate after. The way that AI and technology moves at the moment is so fast and bureaucracy, as we all know, is incredibly slow. Do you think that has had an effect on uh, the ability to create policy when needed for AI? I think it's really tough, honestly, because if the policy process is a few years, no AI researcher in the world right now knows what's going to be there in three years. We all have been surprised here and there. There's so many smart people working on moving AI forward at the moment that it's very hard to anticipate what the future will bring. And so it will be even harder for regulators to think that. So I think we need to be a bit more, let's look at status quo, what works today, what doesn't work today, and let's be quick at creating regulation. And if in a year we realize the regulation didn't make sense and we need to adopt it, let's adopt it. Let's be quick, let's be pragmatic, because otherwise the two speeds don't align and then it just creates nonsensical regulation, which also then creates just a lot of compliance and overhead for everyone but also doesn't regulate the real problems. And that was Rasmus Rota, the co-founder of Morantix there. That's all the time we have for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests, to our producers, Vincent McAvinney, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Isabella Jewell, our studio manager, Steph Chungu, for now from me, Emma Nelson. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.